The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden, who joins us from Berlin for the next three months. You'll be with us from Berlin. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, just a quick reminder to everybody, this is your first week in Berlin What are you doing there? I'm working with a German research institution on a project that looks at comparing Chinese and EU offerings to Africa in relation to green energy transition. Okay, because a lot of our subscribers this week sent some emails saying, because you wrote, greetings from Berlin. And everybody's like, what the F is he doing in Berlin? (laughs) So this is great that you're there. Uh, So we're going to get updates from you from Berlin and really try and tap in a little bit more to the Europe-China-Africa dialogue that's going on, on development, on climate change, on so many of the geopolitical issues, and really want to take advantage of your time in Germany. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about railroads. Now, okay, everybody, don't get turned off by that. It's not a boring subject. The fact is you cannot understand the China-Africa story unless you understand the critical role that railroads played in the development of the China-Africa narrative, but also to this day. And let me just run you through some news that's come up in just the past few weeks, which will give you a, a flavor of why this is so important. Earlier this month, the Ghanaian government announced that it finally reached a deal with the Australian mining giant Rio Tinto and a consortium of Chinese state-owned enterprises to build a massive 600-kilometer railway from the huge iron ore mines at Simandu to the Morbaya port on the Atlantic coast. Just to give you a sense of how big this project is, there's going to be 235 bridges that will be built as part of this railway, And it's running through a whole bunch of mountains, and so it's going to require massive tunneling. One of the tunnels they're going to build for this railway is 11 kilometers long. Just imagine the complexity and the cost of doing that. Then over in Nigeria, we learned that Nigerian taxpayers are shelling out, get this, $50 million a year to repay a half a billion dollar China Exim Bank loan that was taken out to build the Abuja Light Rail. Okay, that is great. Lagos has a Chinese finance light rail. Addis Ababa has one. And Egypt's new capital is also getting one. So Chinese light rails are quite popular in Africa. But here's the problem with the Abuja one. It never happened. The construction stopped three years ago as the pandemic was getting underway. And it never started up again. And here's the catch. They borrowed the money from the China Exim Bank, a total of $500 million out of $823 million to pay for this light rail. And the China Exim Bank says, you owe us the money, it's time to pay up. So what an incredible waste of money, but $50 million a year, especially now when times are so difficult in Nigeria to think that $50 million is just going out for nothing. On a more positive note, Kenya and Uganda are now looking to raise $6 billion of new financing to extend the standard gauge railway from Naivasha in the Rift Valley, that's in Kenya, 
all the way to Malaba on the border with Uganda. Now, I think it's phase three of the standard gauge railway that back in 2008, the Chinese said, you know what, we don't want any part of this. This is not for us. So they stopped financing it all the way up to Naivasha. But there's been this dream of connecting East Africa, the DRC in particular, Rwanda, South Sudan, all connected with Uganda and Kenya, and even, I think, connecting up with the Tanzanian standard gauge to have this beautiful rail network. The dream is still there. No one's really sure where they're going to come up with $6 billion. William Ruto, the president, says he's going to ask China for some of that money. And you got to think to yourself, Kobus, does this guy not know anything about what's going on? Because the Chinese have made it abundantly clear that they do not want to finance more standard gauge railway development in East Africa. Nonetheless, Ruto says he is going to make that request, and uh, we're going to see that railway eventually go from Mombasa all the way to the Ugandan border with the DRC Rwanda and South Sudan. That's the plan. Okay, so let's see if that happens. And then last one I just want to bring your attention to is one that uh, we've been talking about on the show for several months now. That's the Lobito Corridor in Angola that connects the cobalt and copper mining belts in Zambia and the DRC with the Port of Lobito on the Atlantic coast. Now, this is going to be refurbished. It's a 1,200-kilometer railway, and it's going to be refurbished with a $250 million financing package from the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. This would be the first time that the United States actually steps into the railway sector in Africa, in all, I think, ever. You know, I'm not entirely sure if they've never done it, but certainly in our memory— it's a little bit odd, this whole deal. I say we've been writing about this a lot in our daily coverage, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, in part because part of the motivation is to divorce the United States and China from each other in the critical mineral supply chain. So the United States wants to kind of break free from Chinese dominance in this, but there's a little bit of a catch because the lead contractor on the refurbishing is none other than the Portuguese construction giant Moto Engil. Now, Moto Engil is a company that is third owned by a Chinese state-owned enterprise. So there's Chinese presence there. The Chinese also will tell you that they are thrilled that the United States wants to pay for this because when the cobalt and copper eventually makes it to the Atlantic coast, where's most of that going to go? It's going to be picked up mostly by Chinese ships and taken where else? To eastern China for processing because there's really nowhere else to process cobalt other than in China. So a little bit weird on that one, but Cobus, at the end of the day, so much of the railway development that we're seeing in 2023 in many parts of Africa, okay, certainly Guinea and Angola being a great example of that, certainly looks a lot like it did back in 1823 when the Europeans were building railways from the mines to the ports. I mean, to me, that just feels a little bit depressing. Yes, I think the point that we've made many times has been that that in a lot of ways, trying to help African countries to refine those metals in their own countries would be the bigger game changer. But, you know, here we are. But at the same time, one also has to say that African countries do really want rail. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, railways are kind of a sign of modernity. And certainly the massive expansion of the rail network in China has become one of the most, you know, kind of dominant symbols of Chinese development. And obviously, African countries are listening, as are Global South countries in other regions too, where China is also building a lot of rail, for example, in, in Southeast Asia. You know, in the first place, I think people 
want to feel modern and they want to feel that they're developing. But there's also a lot of other issues involved in relation to, for example, green transportation and just generally people's right to mobility without having to own a car themselves. And so all of these factors are at play as well in a kind of a narrative of modernization in which China is now exhibit A of rapid modernization. Well, one of the major talking points in Chinese propaganda that they use a lot to talk about their railway initiatives in Africa is that since 2000, Chinese companies have completed more than 10,000 kilometers of railway lines in Africa. And if that's true, again, I've never added it up, but it sounds somewhat true. That's very impressive. And in many respects, too, they have broken the wall that was set up by the colonial powers where railways of one gauge went to the border and then stopped and then railways of a different gauge picked up the line from there. And so you didn't have the cross-border railways that we have now from Ethiopia to Djibouti, for example. So that's very exciting. But the timing of our conversation about railways is perfect because there's a brand new book that just came out, Africa's Railway Renaissance, The Role and Impact of China. And we're thrilled to have two of the four authors on the show with us, old friends of our programs. Tim Zayons is a lecturer in international relations and global political economy at the University of Dresden and also a research fellow at the Center for International and Comparative Politics at Stellenbosch University. A very good afternoon to you, Tim. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Eric. Hi, Kovos. Good to be with you again. It's wonderful to have you and a thrill to have Mandira Bagwandin back again with us as well. Mandira, again, like Tim, is an old friend of the program. He's been on the show a number of times. She's a senior researcher at the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance at the University of Cape Town. A very good afternoon to you in Cape Town, Mandira. Hi to you both. Thanks for having me again. It's great to speak with you. Also, I just want to give a little hat tip to your co-authors. Yes. Porig Kamodi, who's a professor of geography and the director of the Master's in Development Practice at Trinity College in Dublin, and Anthony Laysons, who is an associate professor of politics at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town. They were not able to join us, but we want to make sure that they get their due credit for their role on the book Tim, let's start with you. I laid out the premise that railways are an indispensable part of the China-Africa story. The title of your book is The Role and Impact of China on Africa's Railway Renaissance. Maybe you can give us the 10,000-meter view of what that impact is, for better and for worse. Yeah, well, that's a huge question, obviously. And I think you gave a brilliant introduction already, Eric, showing how complex Chinese involvement in Africa's railway sector actually is. Obviously, the headlines that make it into the news or the topics that make headlines in the news are very often related to some of these contradictions that both your media outlet has covered in a very nuanced manner, but also Many other media and also us scholars are obviously interested in, one of them being the question of, of railway debt, the question of the economic feasibility and, and actually viability of some of these projects. You have touched upon a few of these examples already, but the complexity is even wider, I suppose. And this is something that we try to investigate in this book, which actually is, uh, as you know, an edited volume. So it is actually not only us four, the ones who you introduced, but also several other experts and colleagues of ours who have joined in 
and who have, in the end of the day, provided a multidisciplinary analysis. So it's not only political scientists or economists. We have had scholars joining who are historians. We have uh, contributors who are anthropologists who have done very, very much micro-level research on some of these projects. And in the end of the day, because you wanted to have a 10,000-meter picture, the finding is in many ways that China's impact and China's role in Africa's railway sector and Africa's railway renaissance, as we call it, is again, highly complex. And it is determined and co-determined by actors and factors on various levels of governance. And this goes, as I said, from the micro level all the way to the macro level. At the macro level, obviously, questions arise about the sustainability of that that you have mentioned already. But then also the question, and Kobus and you both have pointed to that, the question to what extent actually railway projects can trigger weather and to what extent they can trigger spillover effects into other economic sectors. It was very interesting to listen to President Xi's speech at the BRICS summit now last week. It was interesting to hear that he mentioned, to my knowledge, for the first time, stating something to the effect that so-called developing countries, not least uh, certain countries in Africa, actually want industrialization much more than infrastructure. This is new music, let's say. And this points to the wider macroeconomic question of how infrastructure development, of which railway infrastructure is obviously a key element in terms of transporting bulk cargo, connecting centers of consumption and production, such as mines, you have mentioned it, with ports. To what extent such large-scale infrastructure interrelates with broader structural transformation in African economies. And this, of course, is then a question at the macro level. And we have tried to put some of these puzzle pieces together in that really, I think, diverse edited volume that touches upon various of those actors. One last sentence. We do not say that this book obviously can cover Africa's railway renaissance comprehensively. That would be sort of a Sisyphean task and too wide of a task. But we do try and we did try to shed light on various dynamics at various levels of analysis. Mandira, in the wider kind of history of Chinese railway provision in Africa, there, there seems to be kind of two perspectives coming around the role of African governments. On the one hand, you know, there's a lot of kind of railway plans and development plans and, and kind of big ambitions being articulated by various African governments. And then at the same time, there's a lot of narratives of government you know, dysfunction or not kind of paying enough attention to the contracts or not enforcing the projects, as in the case in Nigeria that Eric mentioned. So I was wondering how you looked at the role of African governments in, in this project and where the issue of African agency lands for you. Thanks, Kerbus. Yeah, that's definitely a very important question and one that my chapter in the book tries to deal with. And I think just to first start off, with the big railway plans and big ambitions and, you know, that ties in with the African Union's Agenda 2063. And we've seen that at a continental level, at a regional level and at national level that various plans have been drawn up. And obviously, modern railways, especially if you're thinking about building standard gauge railways, require massive, massive amounts of finance. 
And it seems that the Chinese have definitely filled this need and African countries have willingly turned to China. In in my research, a few of the officials that I interviewed said they did go to Western creditors and Western institutions, but they made it incredibly laborious and, you know, quite time consuming. And the need to really get these rail tracks laid and cargo running, you know, for economic development, economic growth was important. So the turn to China made it, you know, very, it seemed like China was willing to step up given the experience with building railways. And given that the construction and railway companies did need new markets, you know, they were operating already in quite a saturated domestic market in Africa, provided a very good market opportunity. And so they kind of, you know, filled this role of helping develop big railway plans, like Eric mentioned, the cross-border railway between Ethiopia and Djibouti. And these railways, especially when they were started with construction uh, was occurring, there was a lot of hype around them about being symbols of economic prosperity and modernity. And there was, I think, a lot of African countries were really kind of riding this wave of viewing these as railways to facilitate regional integration and spur economic development. But at the same time, when we reflect on, you know, the processes of how these railways were built, kind of governance and decision-making around it, especially, I've especially focused on the Kenyan case. I think that, you know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this. In my opinion, I feel especially on the African side or the Kenyan side, you know, they'd kind of dropped the ball a bit on, you know, really ensuring the feasibility of the project, given the size of the economy, the debt levels, and really carrying out their due diligence. And that's, that's something my chapter really kind of tries to drive home is that while African countries are really desperate need of railways, not just because, you know, for, for green energy transitions and their more environmentally form of transport, but essentially for their structural economic transformation, it needs to be done in a very measured and thoughtful manner because from my research, the meter gauge, if it was just refurbished and modernized and updated, it would have done the job for the next 10, 20 years, you know, before you would have considered upgrading to a standard gauge. So I think it was a bit premature for the Kenyans to go for such a big railway project, given the size of the economy and the debt stress that they're under. I also, in my Research found, you know, politics came into play, leaders wanting to show that they were developmental conscious, uh, as well as kind of using these railways as kind of political advertisements for campaigns and things. So there's a lot of research that needs to go into really exploring who are these railways for, I think, you know, is it for getting political votes or is it really for the citizens? And I think there's a bit of a, a dichotomy that needs to be explored. Well, speaking of that debt in Kenya, which is very central to this question, Kenya's total public debt now is north of $70 billion. And Kenya, according to the Financial Times, spends about $10 billion a year on debt repayments. A lot of it does go, in fact, to China to pay for the standard gauge railway loans that are now coming due. Tim, this brings up this question that that Mandira touched on in terms of whether or not this makes sense. And I know a lot of countries in Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, go down the line, think that railways are the sign of modernization and they're absolutely essential. And that's the same thinking out here in Southeast Asia. However, there is a school of thought led by Kenyan economist David Ndi, 
who is now an advisor, by the way, to Kenyan President William Rutu, who says that this is a complete waste of money, that spending the billions of dollars to build railway would be much better spent in human development, education, health care, maternal care, and all these things. And that's what Southeast Asian many respects have done. And David indeed compares the economic trajectory of where I am in Southeast Asia, which is still largely agrarian, doesn't have a lot of railways, has not industrialized, but has had better economic performance than most African countries. Now, again, we cannot do a one-to-one comparison. There are countless variables between these two regions. But it does raise the question that if people drunk the development Kool-Aid and saying, well, of course, if we're going to modernize, we have to have a railway. And so then they go out looking for money. The West said, nah, we're not interested in funding railways. The IMF, the World Bank said, nope, not for us either. And there was a time when China said, you want a railway? My gosh, we've got extra capacity, as you guys wrote in your book. We'd love to give you a railway and the loans that come with it. Does that logic make sense today when we see so many African countries under such economic distress? Does spending billions on railways make sense versus spending billions on human development? Yeah, I mean, this is really the $100 million question. And or $6 billion question in the case of Kenya. <laughs> exactly in that case, yes. And I think there is no black or white answer to it in the sense of one being able to give an answer universally. I think on the one hand side, there is obviously research in economics that clearly documents that certain so-called hard infrastructure, including transport infrastructure, and as Mandira has mentioned already, railways on land remain the most efficient in most contexts, the most efficient and cheapest way of transporting, particularly bulk cargo. The problem I see is that, and this is something that we have seen for the last 10, 15 years with the emergence of what some of our colleagues, uh, Seth Schindler, for instance, in, at the University of Manchester has called infrastructure-led development, was that belief that basically, if one puts in large-scale infrastructure, including railways, which are obviously, as Mandira mentioned, capital-intensive and expensive, incurring large-scale costs and basically binding large amounts of, of public budgets, which could be used differently, as you suggest, Eric, there was this belief that basically by putting in large-scale infrastructure, there would be some mysterious spillovers or trickle-down effects and automatic effects in other sectors of the economy. And I think this is where policies need to be evaluated and also corrected in the sense of putting in railways and putting in large-scale infrastructure does not result automatically in diversification of an economy. It needs to be accompanied by industrial policies and also by targeted investment. This investment can be foreign investment, but it needs to be very targeted in the sense of increasing productive capacities, investing in value addition within the African uh, region, and if this is complemented by prudent and, as Mandira called it, thoughtful decisions on infrastructure, then we see basically synergy effects arising. And this is in many ways the history of many so-called late developing countries in the 1980s and 1990s, where basically infrastructure development was really matched with prudent and targeted industrial policies. The opposite would be putting in place 
railways that in many ways prolong certain dependencies, not only in terms of the debt, we have discussed the debt extensively, but also in terms of the routing of railways and the spatial political economies that particularly colonial railways have reinforced. You know, the interland port connectivity to basically support racialized exploitative extractivism. If this is the pattern that is continued by basically putting in railways that connect again mines to ports without anything of those products being actually used on the continent or value added on the continent, we might argue that with the African railway renaissance, in such cases, we see history repeating itself with the same spatial patterns in terms of geographical patterns of those railway projects, connecting mines with ports and not much value addition, if any value addition at all happening on the content. And I think this is really the qualified answer to your question. Yes, investment in large-scale infrastructure, including railway, is absolutely necessary for diversifying African economies, yet it needs to be complemented by a prudent industrial strategy and also, and this is something obviously that we also discuss extensively in the book, by really regionally well-coordinated railway projects. And this, unfortunately, is also something that has been lacking in Africa's railway renaissance. Mandira, speaking, I think, you know, kind of East Africa particularly kind of is, is is a great example of that particular issue. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about all of these dreams of an integrated East African rail network and the realities of actually making that happen. Yes, Kobus, that's been on the table for, I think, over a decade now to, you know, really connect the East African communities through a common railway network. Kenya seems to be pioneering that, completing the Mombasa Naivasha network. And to, it also, you know, as we mentioned, needs to connect to Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi and, and the DRC. And then eventually the Tanzanian railway would feed into that and make one kind of looping kind of network and connect also up with the Ethiopian Djibouti line. I think one is... You know, there's definitely that ambition and you can see that the EAC, especially on paper with various documents that it's produced, has quite a vision to make this happen. But again, it comes down to financing. It comes down to political will to get these projects started. And I think each country is, you know, at different levels of development and kind of economic development. So it seems that it's going to be kind of a patchwork approach. And I think Uganda is waiting for the Kenyan railway to get to the border once it sees like, okay, you know, the project's really reaching us. I think it will, Uganda will kick into action and get funders on board to build its section. So I think it's still there. The dream is still there. And I think they will still be working towards it, but it's just a matter of if, when, and how, I think are the main questions. Well, let me push you a little bit on this, Mandira, because this is the key issue. Everybody talks about this, but where is the money going to come from? These are multi-billion dollar projects for countries that simply don't have the capacity to carry that kind of debt. So if that's the case, private investors are not going to come in. These are not profitable ventures. And by the way, just one very quick point, just to follow up on what Tim pointed out in terms of the 
economic impact. Never listen to anybody from Europe or the United States lecture Africans about the profitability of railroads. Last year, the German government subsidized their railway by 18 billion euros. SNCF in France never makes any money. Amtrak in the United States, Lord knows, is a just a hot mess and doesn't make any money. So the fact that these railways are not profitable by themselves is not a, as Tim pointed out, that's not a disqualifying factor. And again, ignore that criticism that comes from other countries. And even the Chinese by them, their railways aren't profitable either. Only I think the Japanese are profitable. But I, let's get to the bottom line here. They have the dream. Who's going to finance it? They can't take out commercial loans. The World Bank and IMF the new World Bank president has said he's not really that into the major large-scale infrastructure. He wants to finance green stuff. So where does the money come from in reality? You know, Eric, I think you're you know, right in what you're saying. They have to be sold as bankable projects. We've had blunders now with the Kenyan Railway and the whole debacle around the debt and corruption around that. So I think they'd have to try and really makes the financial case for the projects to be bankable. I mean, as it hasn't deterred, you know, like you mentioned, the US and other actors, the Turkish coming in, also actors from the Middle East coming in to fund railways. So it might not be one creditor, but maybe a host or a group of creditors funding a project. And I do think that the Ethiopia-Djibouti railway is starting to really, you know, show some positive signs after a rocky start. So I think if the projects show bankability and they're backed up by thorough feasibility studies and due diligence, I think that, you know, funders could come together, maybe not one funder, specifically China funding a whole a railway network, but possibly a group coming together to fund the railway. And I do you know, 100% agree that African economies or governments, they don't have the financial chest to provide subsidies for these railways. So they do have to show some profitability and that's going to be tricky to get investors. If you allow me to add there, I think your question is really spot on and, and very important. And we do see, or we have seen examples, and I guess Tanzania is the best case in point, where a rather pragmatic approach towards railway financiers, but also construction firms, has worked quite well. As you know, the first three phases were built by a consortium of this Turkish company and a Portuguese company. And now we have a phase four and five with, again, Chinese construction firms involved. And all this has actually over the years been, been funded through Tanzania's budget. So it does work, but, and this is what Mandira mentioned already, these projects need to be based and coordinated regionally and based on feasibility studies. And this is something where some governments have been pushing ahead with what one can call railway nationalism without proper coordination which project design is most feasible because as soon as you coordinate and have a regional railway master plan and this is what has been lacking in most sub-regions in Africa um, basically proper enforceable railway master plans which give a priority list of projects instead of basically building railways with a scattergun approach really targeted railway projects that are coordinated, which then in the long run will basically become economically viable. Obviously only in the long run. You rightly point out that in Western countries, but also in China, a lot of these projects take a long time to be feasible, if at all. 
But I think an investor would always, and even any policy bank is in that case an investor, would look down to the numbers, can this borrower pay back that loan? And for that to be the case, these projects actually need to make economic sense and need to basically increase productive capacity as well or work towards increasing productive capacity because then basically it does make more economic sense. Just to add what Tim mentioned earlier, like it has to go in tandem with industrial development. Like you can't build these railways and then just expect them to magically make money without having servicing industrial areas or transporting cargo. For them to flourish, they have to be embedded in a, in a kind of a dynamic industrial environment. And I think you're seeing that, you know, with Ethiopia's special economic zones and hubs and trying to do that. But it's definitely going to be, you know, kind of quite a, it's, it's a long-term project. So I think just to kind of build on Tim's point and reiterate that, you know, the railways can't be just put in place without kind of industrial environment to support the growth. Just as a final question, and you know, I'd love to for, for both of you to kind of weigh in on this. One of the factors I think that fed into the profitability of railway infrastructure in Japan, and I think this is also true for Hong Kong, is that the Japanese government ended up helping to financing some of it by selling commercial real estate rights to around and, and above the stations. So many of the station buildings in Tokyo are these huge buildings, particularly in, in, in Shinjuku, you know, kind of with, with many floors above and, you know, thousands of shops and frequently also below. And of course, I think that does offer a certain level of, or it does offer an, an interesting model, but it's also very much based on certain Japanese realities. So both Tim and, and Mandira, do, do, do you see any kind of African specific kind of ways of pulling in other sectors or you know kind of other other ways of, of fostering local kind of energy to to make this kind of sets of infrastructure more profitable yeah i don't see the japanese example really flying in many african contexts besides really rapidly growing urban places such as lagos but certainly also dar salaam tanzania which will grow immensely in the next 20 30 40 years but both of these cities for instance do have a major real estate bubbles already. So I don't see this is the Japanese context in the sense of really densely structured urban spaces where there's little space. So basically the railway firms owning land close to the railway tracks would be able to raise money and revenues like that by selling real estate. I don't see that happening anytime soon in many African contexts. But I think the key is indeed to, especially in those countries where we have rehabilitated railways now or greenfield projects such as in, in Kenya or in Tanzania to basically for governments try to, to attract really targeted investments in productive capacities. What do I mean by those economist terms? By really questioning, and this depends, of course, on the economic structure of the economy. If we are talking Katanga, DRC, or Zambia, which is obviously a very dependent still on mining, the question would be, okay, how can we use the current infrastructure that is in place or new infrastructure to be put in place? How can we use it to attract investments in, let's say, value addition in the mining value chain, for instance, in those countries, or Tanzania, Kenya, 
in the agricultural sector. So now having these railways in place, which is really a benefit for an investor because investors take their decisions, do I have access to affordable, reliable bulk cargo means of transportation? So these countries do have that now. And of course, we are still hoping that along the northern corridor beyond Kenya, that this project does continue into Uganda, South Sudan and Congo then it is really up to national governments, but also up to the regional economic communities to incentivize investments along these railway routes by saying, look, you are now with your investment so close to a specific railway line, it becomes really easy to export and import, but also to produce here, to add value here, to do light manufacturing, to do assemblage in our country. So I think now having some of these railways in place, they need to be integrated again in an industrialization strategy and really sort of also used to attract targeted investment. And of course, special economic zones are sort of one methodology that can work. We have also seen they don't necessarily work, but they can work. And having a railway in place is certainly a convincing argument for an investor who is looking for investment outlets. And of course, Chinese firms are interested in moving some light manufacturing out of China because of rising costs within China. So Chinese investors could basically be attracted by saying, listen, there is a railway now. It has even been built and financed by China. Please come and invest along or close to the railway track. And Mandira, we're going to give you the last word. Yeah, I agree with Tim. I don't think we're going to see, you know, the type of strategy that the Japanese have used. I think what's come out of the discussion is not viewing railways in isolation, but viewing it as part of a coherent industrialization strategy. And I think that a lot of discussion now, especially with the AFCFTA, has focused on, you know, building regional value chains in Africa and connecting them to global value chains. And I think the big plan needs to be how do we ensure that railways or the use of railways are integrated in building regional value chains across the continent and which kind of value chains would they best work in? So would it be along the battery, building battery, renewable battery value chains where you need them to move commodities from mines to refineries? So the focus needs to be on, you know, really how do we make sure that railways don't, you know, suffer the, the legacy of colonial railways, that these modern railways really are here to serve a long-term purpose. And I think one thing we shouldn't confuse or should not be confused with is there's this focus on, you know, really using high-end technology or top technology that demonstrates modernization. And I think that comes with the ambition to kind of leapfrog or or kind of accelerate economic development and industrialization. But I think the railway's function and how well it performs really comes down to it being efficiently governed or managed and effectively run. So we also need to pay attention to, you know, once these railways are done, it's like how do we ensure that they are maintained, well-organized, and really do serve their purpose um, with driving industrialization on the continent. The book is Africa's Railway Renaissance, The Role and Impact of China. It is available 
on Amazon. You can get it as a Kindle. Kobus, you're going to hear me complain yet again about the lunacy of academic pricing. It's just tragic to me that they do this. $170 for hardcover <laughs> <Academic> books. <laughs> oh, my God. So I guess if you're in some university library somewhere, I'm hoping that they can have it. The Kindle's at $42, so that's more reasonable. It just pisses me off to no end that this is the way the world works. I know I it's not your fault. It's just insidious, though. But uh, two of the authors of this wonderful book, Tim Zayantz, who's a lecturer in international relations and global political economy at the University of Dresden and also a research fellow at the Center for International and Comparative Politics at Stellenbosch University in lovely Cape Town, South Africa, and Mandira Bagwandin, who is a senior researcher at the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance at the University of Cape Town. Tim Mandira, thank you so much for joining us. Just before we go, one of the traditions that we have on the show is lots of people want to follow up with you and connect with you. Tim, I know you are on X. That sounds weird to say, okay? But let's just go with it. Where can people find you on X? My handle is at T Science. Science is a bit complicated, but it's basically T Z A J O N T Z. Okay. And Mandira, I'm not sure. Are you on social media? <laughs> I am, but I'm not on X. I have a social media cap. I, I don't think I can take on X, but you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay. I will put links. And I'm doing this now in the show notes now because everybody was asking me to put the LinkedIn links. So every week now, you'll find the LinkedIn links of all of our guests, including Tim and Mandira. You are a, a very wise woman, by the way, for not being on X. So I, I do commend you for that. So Tim, Mandira, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Congratulations on the book. And it was so wonderful to speak with you again. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Kobus. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobus. Kobus, I'm so glad that Mandira and Tim brought up this question of regional value chains, because this is something that we hear a lot about coming out of academics and think tanks. But the reality, though, of regional value chains in most parts of Africa is that it is still a fantasy. The fact is, is that going from South Africa to Berlin, where you are, is easier than it is to go from South Africa to the DRC or elsewhere in many cases in terms of visas, border controls, and all of the uh, taxation issues. Let's go down the line on different things like that. And African governments have not taken the steps to make it so that, as Mandira pointed out, that you could have a battery metal value chain where country X does the mining, country Y does the processing, and country Z does the exporting. That would be amazing. Our friend Jude Moore over at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. has been talking about regional electricity markets where country like Kenya is very wealthy in electricity, especially renewable electricity, thermal solar, all of this, and they could be exporting electricity to other countries and for distribution and, and dissemination. So we don't see that happening, though. And we don't see the coordination at the regional level to facilitate trade. Yes, the AFCFTA, the African Continental Free Trade Area, is now in effect, but I don't think the reality has changed that much compared to when it wasn't in effect. So what's your take on this question of the regional value chains, the reality versus the hope? I think there's a tension, I think, that characterizes a lot of, of African development issues between big regional and continental ideas of how, how things could be, and then the role of individual states and individual politicians within those states as gatekeepers. 
And frequently, what you frequently find in, in many African countries is that, you know, the, the way that, that people end up exercising their own authority and, and getting a little little cut for themselves is by obstructing larger plans. You know, kind of, so it's frequently, like, there is this big large plan kind of happening either at regional level or, or continental level or even on a national level. And then frequently, like, a lower level person is the kind of blockage there, you know, kind of because they need to be pulled into it in some kind of way and, they, and they're looking for themselves and that logic is unfortunately very difficult to dislodge you know it's it's i think africa has, has had a lot more problems with trying to make that work than for example i think the the southeast asian countries and you know and, and i think what one of the one of the issues is these cultural and historical kind of barriers that run through the continent that divide regions because of historical legacies because of colonial legacies particularly that then make it harder for them to actually work together yeah, so here in Southeast Asia, vehicles are made in Thailand, sold in Vietnam at almost no tariff to move those across the border in any of the ASEAN countries. And so that actually adds an enormous amount of efficiencies in terms of the intra-ASEAN trade, which again is the hope of the AFCFTA that the barriers to trade internally within Africa will come down, the cost of trade will come down and whatnot. But back to railways... One of the problems in places like Nigeria is that the difficulty of moving goods from point A to point B adds enormous costs to the production. So food, any kind of product for manufacturing and whatnot. And so it's one of the reasons why in such poor countries you see incredibly high prices for things. And you think to yourself, how can it be this expensive when the cost of living is so cheap? It's because of the inefficiencies and the ability to transport things in the logistics question. So that's one of the rationales behind why we need railways and we need roads and the infrastructure that the Chinese have been building over the past 20 years is so vital is because it lowers the cost of production and therefore the cost of goods and ultimately benefits the society writ large. So I think when we talk about the value of logistics and railways too often in the West, and I'd be interested to hear what what the gossip is in Berlin when they talk about these things. They focus on the debt, but they don't focus on the benefits, which is lowering the cost of goods and the ability to move things cheaper, more effectively and more efficiently than what's done today. And I think that's an important part of the discourse that's often missing. I think so. I mean, there was this famous study, I can't remember who did it, but it's it's a really often cited study where they found that, that shipping a car from, I think, Tokyo to Kenya is cheaper than getting that same car from Kenya to Nigeria. And, you know, so it's it's a massive issue. We were touching on the profitability of the railway projects themselves. And I think it's also important to take into account that that profitability seen narrowly as is one issue but then the kind of knock-on effects of having those systems in place there's where the real value in them lie and i think one example in africa where you can really kind of see that happening already is in johannesburg where the Gauteng kind of light rail system which connects the airport to different parts of the city and runs kind of north south not as far south as it needs to be to connect to soweto but still runs from the kind of north through the kind of financial district to the center of johannesburg you now do see that the city is building around those hubs you know kind of you can see that you know 10 years ago 
those weren't necessarily such kind of happening suburbs as where they are now, where there's suddenly like big apartment buildings like coming up and where one of their selling points is it's close to the station. It, it is possible to do, but there's a lot of moving parts there. And, and the thing with South Africa, of course, is that South Africa has a much more diversified economy than many other African countries. So I think there lies one of the big challenges. And that is also what is starting to happen now along the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya. Naivasha in the Rift Valley is starting to become a commerce hub and a shipment hub. And so the value of the property and the railroad goes up when that kind of activity is there. By the way, everybody, I want to bring your attention to our website and a fascinating article by a young Chinese graduate who graduated from Columbia University this fall, uh, this spring actually, uh, Zhang Haotian. And upon graduation, he treated himself to a trip to East Africa and to ride the old railways, the Tazara Railway, and then also the new railway, the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya. And he took some amazing photos and wrote an incredible travel log. It's entitled An Unforgettable Journey on East Africa's Chinese-Built Railways, Old and New. It's on our website. I'll put it in the show notes. It's a wonderful complement to the discussion that we've had because in many ways it humanizes what we've been talking about in the geopolitics, the economics, the finance, the debt. And at the end of the day, these are railroads moving people and goods in many respects, but a lot of people. And I cannot recommend Hao Tian's wonderful piece enough. Again, it will be in the show notes. Let's leave our conversation there. Again, if these are the topics that interest you, and we know that if you stayed this far into the podcast, it definitely has interested you. You will definitely appreciate the work that Cobus and the rest of the China Global South team are doing every single day to produce really the world's most cutting-edge content on what China's doing in the Global South. We do it in Arabic, French, and English. Your support of our work helps us do this, and we couldn't do it without you. And so if you would like to support what we're doing, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Memberships are very affordable. If you are a student or teacher, we'll give you half off. So just email me for the links, and uh, and I'll be, turn those around to send them to you right away. Eric at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. So Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>